Unknowing our assumptions about each other is easily one of the most difficult practices in relationships. I believe it was Chaucer who was credited with saying, familiarity breeds contempt, but I don't know which author or person said this following part, familiarity breeds contempt and contempt profound ignorance. One of you can message me and let me know who it was that said that whole phrase. But here's the deal. It is so true. We get so cozy with our stories about each other. And when we do that, we don't realize that part of what we're doing is creating a border around a person or a group of people and declare that they can never be more than that story. They could never, ever transcend whatever it is that that story contains. Imagine within the framework of creativity saying to a six-year-old that their six-year-old painting was the totality of their human expression for the rest of their lives. Right? We would never, ever say that. (laughs) We would never say that. And yet think about how many different ways we are saying that about each other and even about ourselves. We say, that one thing you did will define you forever. Or, I am the totality of the things that have happened to me. So I suppose that the antidote to familiarity and the contempt that it breeds is curiosity. The ability to remain curious and to look with the eyes of the heart to every person we encounter as though it's the first time, as though we're meeting them for the first time, as though they actually had the capacity to surprise us and be something more than we even imagined. So I wanted to have this conversation with somebody that I consider to be the queen of curiosity and kindness, someone who I have witnessed talking to strangers with that kind of awe and wonder and being willing to really truly connect beyond cultural, spiritual, or political borders. Misha Lorado Robinson is the founder and chief executive of I Am We Are, which is an organization focused on empowering South African youth with the fortitude and skills to overcome the barriers they face in pursuing their dreams. Misha is a social entrepreneur, a youth empowerment advocate, and a brand strategist. And I had the pleasure of working with her at the organization Unite, based in Washington, D.C., and witnessed firsthand the power of this woman and the ways that she can bring light into every potential dark space and just bring light everywhere she goes, really. But I'll let you discover that for yourself as you listen to Misha. So without any further introduction, let's dive into episode nine of Unknowing with Misha Lorado Robinson. Misha, you are one of the brightest stars in my constellation. Thank you so much for being on Unknowing and spending this time with me this afternoon. You're welcome. I'm sorry. I know you said we're recording and all, but girl, you just said stuff. I was like, let me pull out my notebook while we talking so I could take notes. I know it'll be recorded, <laughs> but I was like, I got, I, that was beautiful. I got to write that down. I'm like, me? Look at me, a bright constellation. But that was just beautiful language. Okay. You are. It is the truth. And I say that because there is like a life force in all of us, right? And I don't feel like we pay enough attention to the ways in which that 
life force in each of us interacts. And you have this effect on people. I have watched you do this. You walk into any space and you connect. You connect with the person serving coffee. You connect with a stranger walking down the street. And one of my favorite things that you say when you leave somebody or you're like leaving the room is you'll say, I appreciate you. I appreciate you. (laughs) And that has stayed with me, Misha, to the point where every time I hear that phrase or I say it myself, I smile so big because I think of you. Oh, thank you. I so appreciate you reflecting that back to me because I think to your point, we don't recognize who we are sometimes. And I think especially to, to what you said, like that soul within. And what I'm also learning on my own personal journey of embracing all of my truth and my I amness is that those things that people always told me or the things that made me weird, the things that um, I tried to hide so I could blend in are those things that you are acknowledging in this moment that actually speak to sort of my purpose, my truth, my uniqueness and sort of what God put in me to bring forth in the world. And so I've been on this journey of like owning them, loving them and unapologetically bringing them forth. And so it's great to hear that my quirky weirdness actually does bring light. And I actually have on a shirt today that says I'm a light in dark places, but it actually does bring light and isn't something that sort of you want to repel away from. So let's dive in. I want to hear about the quirky making of Misha. Um, (laughs) I, (laughs) I like to start each episode by asking the guest, okay, you know, most of us are really shaped by our childhood and the maps that we're given, the lenses that we're handed to make sense of reality. So I want to hear about the map that you were handed growing up. What was the lens that you were given to interpret your world? Wow. Wow. I already knew this conversation was going to go there, but I'm like, okay, like, how do I answer that? The method I was given to navigate the world, um, I think first and foremost, I was born um, and raised by a single mother. I am the oldest and the only girl. So I have two younger brothers. We're five years apart, each of us. So I'm older, older. I helped my mom raise them and take care of them. We grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. We originally grew up in an area that was primarily black. And then we literally just flipped to the other side, which was primarily white. And uh, that was a journey of understanding, like, who are you in the midst of this? And sort of in an area that was very conservative and country. And I look now at the history and very (laughs) racist, uh, conservative. Um, Sort of the map, though, and when I'm learning, just as I look to understand my mother as who the woman she is and not my mother or not a sister or even a friend, but the woman she is, she was a dreamer. Um, I've heard her talk about like the Waldens and she loved like how they all said, I've never watched the Waldens, but um, she liked how they all said goodnight at the end. Good night, Bobby. Good night, Susie. Good night. That was like the life she wanted. She wanted sort of that country life. So That's partly why we moved out to the area that we moved out to when I was like five. You know, she put me in like a 4-H horse club. Those moments are when I realized what race was. I didn't know it before that and sort of this discomfort with being different, this discomfort with my hair texture, this discomfort. You know, I remember walking around a pillowcase on, but those things came when we moved out there. But at the same time, I remember vividly that I was at my grandmother's house in Jersey. So single mother and, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, so, you know, latchkey kids. So we went, we spent the summers at grandma's house. I went away for the summer 
And I vividly remember driving up to this house and my mother's like, this is where we live now. And I was like, really, this is our house? And we had a house before that and actually with a much bigger yard and we had, a, I had my own playground set in my backyard. So this house was just different. Um, but when I went up, I shared a room with my aunt before that because she was living with us. And now I had my own bedroom and my brother had his own bedroom and he was probably like a newborn at that point. But I remember walking into this bedroom and like, oh my gosh, this memory comes back to me and is so pivotal in my life, I realize now. But like, it was like a canopy bed with yellow lace curtains and matching yellow comforter set, quote unquote, with matching yellow dressers, two yellow dressers, one tall, one wide, a yellow rocking chair, like my stuffed animals were spread across the bed with matching, you know, the, the yellow curtains, the yellow thing at the top. And I just kept being like, this is mine. This mm. is mine. And it was like, to me, I didn't know anybody at that point that had matching furniture and matching sets. And I just, it was like the stuff I saw on TV and it was like, I get to live here and this is mine. And my mom being like, yeah. And so I think my mother just, she imagined a different world and she invited me to come into that world. And that was a world as I got older that included taking dance. I did everything in DC because she wanted me to still be around people of color, black people. So we went to DC a lot, even though we lived in the suburbs and I was on the Metro a lot by myself, which speaks to my independence and my, you know, I was home by myself growing up. So I would get on the Metro and go into this other world in these dance classes, whether it was tap or African dance, where like my dance instructor was French and we performed at the French embassy see a lot. My African dance class, you know, they were from different places in West Africa. There was a South African guy, but I remember being in that world and just wanting to travel and see and hear and listening to them talk about where they were from and their accents and just marveling at it. I think the other last thing that gave me my map that was just, I'm learning now is very critical to who I am today is just a very Afrocentric or a community that had a lot of pride in being Black. So, you know, whether it was my uncle created a game called Black Quest when I was growing up and, you know, he was a business owner and, you know, he talked about the value in that. Or even like I used to model and we, I modeled at like the, the Black Expo and the Black Family Reunion. So I was in this community that just had a lot of pride in our blackness. We even took modern classes at a school where um, it was called Roots Academic Learning. And I remember being there and as it was like, I'm in middle school or high school at this point, but they had maps of Africa on the wall. And like the assignment was to know all the countries. And I just remember like, I don't know all the countries in Africa, but these kids were like in kindergarten, first grade learning that, but just seeing that and absorbing that on the wall, absorbing all the accents I was around, absorbing the pride, and then going back to my very suburban, you're the one and only, especially as I got into like gifted and talented classes, all of those things, that ability to navigate these different worlds and, you know, be in them. I think those are the experiences that are my map. Mm. It's incredible because as you're describing this, that's the image that I had was like maps within maps, worlds within worlds that you were being exposed to your heritage, your connection to place and story and history through this pride of the African diaspora, of the, the connection to your roots, while simultaneously being exposed to lots of other cultures as well. So your world was really, really big. And then in the suburbs, you'd go back to that like kind of small, <laughs> smaller container. So I'm curious about that. I'll call it a harmony. It's like a couple of really rubby notes there that, that were being fostered in you. Because 
as we're discussing maps and borders, as long as I've known you, you've always had this insatiable curiosity and hunger to travel. So was this really the beginning for you while you were being exposed to these other cultures and your dance classes and this connection to your heritage, to Africa? Was this the beginning of your insatiable hunger for exploring the world? And then my second question is, when did you first jump off the U.S. map? I want to know. No. Yes, let's talk about that. <laughs> no, you know what? One other world I should say as a map was, um, you know, my Christian upbringing. Like I, I definitely even as, um, again, single mother. So I went to stuff with my mom going to choir practice with her. And she tells me the story and I do remember it. But I walked down the aisle, you know, my, my profession of my faith to Christ. I did that at the age of five. And I just got up and walk down the pew on my own and my mom's like oh she's gone <laughs> and and I and when I got up there because I was so young you know they asked you all the questions do you know what you're doing do you want to do this and I answered them all correctly with no problem and you know they asked my mom she's like that's what she wants so like I think there's this spiritual pull that was already always there and I, I definitely kind of remember like that moment and just knowing this is what I need to do and that's also been an undercurrent but to go back to your question and the travel piece, I, I started taking French classes in middle school when we had to select a language because I was taking ballet at the time and the school that I went to was very like strict and we had to take these tests to go to different levels. And in my very analytical mind, I said, well, if I study French, it would be easier for me to take these tests. So I picked French as a language. And that, again, I think to you, what you just said, it just opened me up to this whole other world. And I just always wanted to go to France. And, and then by, you know, you fast forward to now like early high school, I'm, I'm in this tap dance company and we're performing at the French embassy all the time. I would collect the magazines that they had at the French embassy and those pictures that I ripped out of these magazines and my I had a subscription. I don't know how I had it or why. Something, one of those things you send away for, but I had a subscription to Elle magazine and Elle decor magazine and all throughout high school. So my wall was covered with these pictures of like the French countryside and whatever I pulled out of my Elle magazines. And those were placed like the little boy posters, you know, from the Tutti Frutti or whatever those magazines were called back then. You know, throughout my French language classes, we had this opportunity to go to France or go to Martinique. I remember in, in college and we didn't have the funds to do it. And it's interesting because even when I applied to colleges, I just wanted to get away. My mother was really strict, too, and strict kind of conservative Christian. I wanted to get away as well and far away and just be on my own. Because to your point, I had this like curiosity and this fire and this passion. And my mom was very like, and you need to stay home and you got to take care of your brothers. And I wanted to just get out and be free. Um, so I applied to University of Richmond in London. I have no clue where I heard of this school. I applied to University of the Virgin Islands. I applied to University of Hawaii. I went to University of Maryland, the state I was from, <laughs> even though I applied to all these schools far away. So by the time I got to senior year of college, and this answers your question about the first trip, I actually took out a student loan. The only student loan I had from my undergrad was to go to travel to Paris and to London because Paris was my first love. I, I had three childhood dreams to travel to Paris, to travel to Africa. And that really came from like being in those African dance classes, just somewhere in Africa, and then to live in New York City because I wanted to go to school in New York. So those are my three childhood dreams. So there was an opportunity to go to Paris and to London with the fashion merchandising program. And I took out a student loan 
to do it. And when I got up, we went to London first and I was like, this is cool, but I wasn't really a fan. I was like, this is nice and all. But when I got to Paris and I both trips, it's so funny, like you are who you are. I wandered on my own away from the group on both of those trips. But when I got to Paris, I was just like, this is everything. And every time I go to Paris, it's still everything. It's my first love. But I was like, if Paris is this good, then I just now got to see everything. Like I was just Mm. on this quest to see the rest of the world after that. So you're in Paris. How long were you in Paris? You know, I'm guessing that the whole trip may have been a week and a half. So this was sort of your holy baptism into falling in love with another culture, one that somehow you intuited all along was going to be a fit for you. When did you decide to become a Peace Corps volunteer? Because I know that that also was a huge shaping in your life. I remember I, I was a business major undergrad. And I wanted to go get an MBA. And we went on this field trip to University of Maryland College Park. I went to Eastern Shore and they kind of they told us in this trip senior year that we needed to get work experience before getting an MBA. And I was like, well, shoot, what am I going to do in my life now? Like I had no clue what I was doing. I just knew I was getting an MBA. And so I in one of my business classes and I'm, you know, I'm dating myself here, but I looked up on the wall. And there was those pieces of paper, like postcards you pull off and you can send away to get information sent to you. And there was one for the Peace Corps and one for Semester at Sea. And Semester at Sea never wrote me, sent me any material. And girl, I'll let you know now, if they would have, I probably would have done Semester at Sea and not Peace Corps. (laughs) But so God knows. But um, I sent away to the Peace Corps. I knew nothing about it. I never met anybody that went to the Peace Corps. I literally just had this pamphlet that came in and I kind of was like, this sounds cool. This sounds interesting. And it kind of, again, going through the list of dreams, I can go live in Africa. And again, sort of the analytical part of me, I'd never lived out of the state of Maryland. I took a position um, after undergrad down in Atlanta. And my whole thought was, if I can be okay on my own in Atlanta, (laughs) then I can be okay in Peace Corps. Even though the two, I, I think back about it now and I'm like, it's not comparable at all, but it really was a huge there's culture shift. There's a slight shift. difference. Yeah, <laughs> there's a slight difference. They're yeah. both hot, but um, it was still a culture shift. A year on my own living in Atlanta definitely did sort of prepare me, and I did my application while I was down there and got all the materials, and I had never heard of Benin. I went, again, dating myself. I went to the mall and went to a bookstore <laughs> and pulled out like an atlas <laughs> to see where in the world, you know, pull out a map physically to see where in the world this was, you know, what continent it is on. So I'm like, okay, it's in Africa. Okay, it's in West Africa. Okay, it's French-speaking West Africa, so I can stay in this sort of francophone space that I had cultivated over time. All right, cool. And so I'm like, okay, and I'm breathing deeply. That night, I go to bed. And the next day when I like turn on the TV, there's a documentary from Henry Louis Gates talking about Benin. And I sat there and I watched that documentary and I was like, okay, I can do this. This doesn't look that bad. And I accept it. That is just, okay. And so this is the thing about you that is so wild. And I'm so glad listeners are getting a small little taste of the wild, trust-filled, faith-driven life of Misha is that I've never known anyone like you that so fully listens to your deepest kind of intuition, your heart's desire, and then collaborates in faith with God in the midst of the universe to confirm. So as you're moving into these unknowing spaces, because as you said, 
going from the States to Benin was kind of a radical, huge cultural experience that you'd never had before. So you're moving into this radical unknowing. But as you're doing it, you're developing the sense of trust that it's not only okay for you to move into unknowing, but that there's gifts in doing so. Yeah. And it's interesting because surrendering has been a theme and a flow throughout my life. And this was one of those moments where this is like, all right, God, I'm listening. You're telling me to do this and I'm going to go. And the whole time I was there, I was like, all right, God, if I can go now, just let me know because I'm going to go because this ain't my thing. There was a cockroach in my bed. I want to go home. Can I go home? Or I have to use an outhouse and there's a huge lizard there. Every I named him Shaka. There is a huge lizard there every night. And I think he's going to jump on my back. God, can I go home? God, like I don't really speak French. Can I go home? Or can I just go to business school and let me apply? I tried applying to business school. I didn't get accepted while I was there. That would give me a like valid excuse to go home. But literally, Brie, I would pray and I would ask. And to your point of like partnering with God and truly like, all right, God, what are we doing? What am I supposed to do? I remember seeing a billboard once. I don't remember what it said, but whatever I prayed on, I was like this huge sign. I was like, all right, God, give me a sign. Like, let me know. Am I really supposed to be here? And it was a freaking billboard that was some, whatever it said, I was like, damn it, I have to stay here longer. Or like going to a church. I didn't go to church that often. It was in the capital. And I went with like friends of my family's friends. Cause then all of a sudden it's amazing. Like once I went, now my, um, my cousin's, wife. My cousin got married while I was there and his father-in-law was working in Benin now. And so they did a whole reconciliation conference where the Beninese government apologized because the transatlantic slave trade started in Benin and they apologized for their role and they had this whole gospel festival and reconciliation conference. But my cousin's father-in-law was one of the organizers of that. So I was able to go to that. I was there. So all of a sudden, all these connections started opening up that were like confirmation of like, you're meant to be here. You're supposed to be here. It was not easy. And I think again, to my faith, and I don't, I don't even think, I guess I've never thought about my faith being strong, but I remember because of Benin is um, the birthplace of voodoo. And so that kind of freaked me out coming up from my good Protestant conservative Baptist uh, upbringing of being in this environment where, you know, you talk about gri gri and you talk about like people putting curses on people like all the time and hearing drumming at night or just being 21 or 22 and living, you know, in a village by myself and not having like being able to pick up the phone for support. But like I would recite the 23rd Psalm over and over again. And that would be like, you know, now I'm thinking of like a language of like a mantra that would pull me through and allow me to have peace when I really got scared. And I even like, put it like the when I moved into the house, the people before me had a mirror to reflect back evil spirits. So I took it down and I put the 23rd Psalm up there instead and was like, all right, this is my reflection back to any evil spirits that want to come over to my house. That was your own way of saying, see you later, evil spirits. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I left the mirror. They had two. I left the one outside of the front door, but I was like, I don't know about that, but I know what I know. I'm putting the 23rd Psalm up here. And in this, I told my friends, even like my Peace Corps friends that were very non-religious, I was like, if you come here on a Sunday, we're going to listen to the word and you're going to hear gospel music. I'm just letting you know. So if you come over here for pancakes, I'm just letting you know. Me and my house on Sunday mornings, we listen to gospel music. So I love this picture you're painting for us because you're right. I don't think you realize like how much you live by faith or how much courage you have. It's impossible for us, I think, to see 
ourselves clearly in that way. That's what community is for. That's what I'm here for is to mirror back to you like, yes, Misha, you have some badass courage and faith that you have lived by. And one of the things I'm noticing is that this experience of moving so fully into discomfort, to being willing to move out of what was familiar to you and into the other is part of a thread that I have seen you weave politically as well. You know, I mean, I I met you through our work in Unite during the Trump presidency, and I have watched you go up to strangers. I mean, always, as I've said, I've literally never met anyone more willing to talk to a stranger than you. But you take it one step further because you would go up to MAGA supporters and people who could have easily been or probably were outright racist and um, hostile toward you. And you would try to connect with them from the heart. So can you share with us an example of one time that stands out in your mind where you did that? And do you see your training in Benin of just this experience you had through the Peace Corps of just being willing to move beyond your own borders as part of what led you to have the courage to do that day to day with human beings as well? Oh, Wow. If anything was that intentional. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because like I asked my small group recently, we were we alternate doing different studies and I asked like, how does God talk to people? And it was interesting because people in my group said God doesn't talk to them. And I was like, really? Because I just thought it was a thing like everybody had. And I, I almost at different points in my life have felt like almost like Joan of Arc. I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Joan of Arcadia, but that show so spoke to me where she like God just is talking to her throughout the day. And as she's weaving through. And I kind of feel like that's what my life is like. And I, at certain points, I was like, am I crazy? I'm like, am I making up this voice um, or this? So I think through all of my travels, the one thing I've embraced and learned is that God talks to me through strangers. And I have a family that talks to people. <laughs> but for me, what that opened up for me was that when I had these moments, I entertained angels. And when I was younger, People would just talk to me. I remember, like, again, I took the metro a lot. I would be like, I mean, have earphones. Let me stare out the window. Let me let me bring a book on the metro with me because I don't want to talk to people. And I'm young. I'm 12 years old, 13 years old on the metro by myself. I'm scared. I don't want to talk to you, right? And people would always talk to me. And so I think at some point... Um, one, I've also prayed and like, okay, God, is this a gift? Is this something that I'm supposed to do something with it? But in addition to this, and this is actually before the prayer came, like people have talked into my life. They have prophesied over me or, you know, told me things about who I am, like just literally sat down like at a bar and was like, you know, this, this and this and da, 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 da. And I'm like, what? Like, I remember being in a bar and this one guy, um, Puerto Rican heavy set guy because I can like visualize him, big long curly hair, very like happy Joey. Some Facebook friends now him, but like he sat down and he, like I don't even remember the whole story. But I was trying to figure out like I just gotten back from Peace Corps. I was trying to figure out what in the world am I gonna do with my life now? Whatever in that conversation at the end of it, like he also gave me the Alchemist. Like he like here's a copy of the Alchemist or something. And like that whole conversation was so pivotal in my life and like helping me to go to. The next level where I felt stuck and I didn't know what I was going to do. But I've had that experience so many times. So I think from a combination of like understanding I have a gift, 
I have a spirit and an energy. I don't know what it is. It's a God-given gift and a spiritual ability where people feel comfortable around me and they open up to me and they share with me. And if other people have been an angel in my life, because they always disappear. Like I don't ever really have conversation with them, even though we may exchange information and hug, I never reconnect with these people. But if people can speak into my life in that way, is that also partly what I am also being given the opportunity to do? So that's what's opened me up to being able to engage with strangers the way I do. And then also just being like, you just never know what somebody is going through. And so that high to somebody that's serving me, that question, that truly heartfelt question of how are you feeling and being open to listening to what people say in that five minutes of conversation or whether it turns into like two hours, you just never know how that may ignite a ripple um, that's positive in somebody's life. So I walk with that as part of like what my calling is in life. But to the Trump supporters specifically, last year, God really said to me, like, and put on my heart that love, being love, embodying love, bringing forth love was one of the things that I am meant to do. And again, I've gotten on this quest of like, who am I? What is my purpose? Like, it's something that's constantly I've been working on and understanding and healing along with that. And love is just something like coming from a place where I didn't think I was lovable or worthy of love to being like God now telling me as I've gone through my own healing process of like, that's what I need to bring forth in the world. Especially through the conversations in Unite just also gave me new framing and understanding of some of the things I'd felt my whole life. Now I had language for it. And so in all of those conversations, as we talked about the divisiveness in the world, what God laid on my heart was that it's easy for you to say you're going to be love and be loving and show love to people that are like you and like-minded, but I want you to be able to do it to everybody. And like there was this challenge and almost conviction to like people that don't believe the things you do. And going back, I think to my background of like growing up in this, you know, area, certain area of Maryland and just being like, you know, coming from being a minority and not wanting to feel that anymore. Um, and just as I also educated myself on this country, I definitely have had moments where I was like, I'm just hanging out with people that look like me, think like me. That's what's comfortable. That is what's safe. This also, you know, when it's coming up to your point, like, well, who, you know, what the image that we have and the stereotype of Trump supporters says everything about that is not safe. But God really challenged me to like, I need you to be love and show love. And that was like a test of, can you be love? You know, and how you treat your neighbor is also how you treat me. And it was like this, it was a challenge that I felt in my heart to be that in this moment when we were all like going into our own corners. And whether that was like getting in the car and driving from Atlanta down to New Orleans and literally just pulling over different places, <laughs> like rest stops, et cetera. And a girl, and, and I knocked on people's doors. Like of all the things you were not supposed to do, I was up where like I my mean, mother lives. I knocked on doors of people with obnoxious Trump signs and was like, hi, I'm here. I'd like to talk to you. <laughs> I just have to pause there to really let the listeners digest what you just said, that you were driving around in the height of the vitriol of the political divisiveness that was at play in the midst of some really horrific public violent moments of murders of black people. You're running around, knocking on doors and being willing to say, hi, I just want to talk to you. Yeah. 
But like I, when you say that, I'm like, but why not? Right. Like in some regards, like, yeah, what I got out of that is I learned how to humanize people. I learned how to, to your point about the other of like getting out of the stereotypes and the narratives. And this is a perfect setup for the story. The narratives that we create in our heads around people and then just really getting to know them. And I think through all of those experiences of talking to people like I went, I purposely went to the Trump rally in Tulsa, I was like, I have to be here. And I went by myself and we were there with Darius. I know he's coming on one of your other calls. And I was like, well, I'm just going over there. And they were all over at the Juneteenth Festival. And they sent like a security guard with me. Like, it was so funny. And I was like, I'm gonna be fine. Like, but sure, you can say like, Amisha, I'm not letting you go unless you have the security guard. And I was like, fine. So this big dude that walked down there with me, I know it's part of my calling. And I just know that like, no matter what, God's got me. So all this stuff, I just know like, it doesn't have to make sense to anybody else, but I know it's what I need to do. But with that said, I was in Virginia celebrating a friend's birthday. I literally had just I got off the plane from South Africa, took a bus down to Virginia to celebrate a friend's birthday with her. I got a hotel room for us for the weekend and we were at the pool at the hotel just hanging out. And my friend, there's two, three of us in our group, all black women. And then there was an older black woman with her two grandchildren who were both young girls. So black women of multiple generations all at this pool, just chilling and hanging out. And these rambunctious kids come like literally run through up to the pool, like cannonball in. And there's like, they're like teenagers. There's like, I mean, a good at least 10 of them, primarily white. And they're just obnoxious and loud. And so because they're like jumping in the pool from every direction and yelling, et cetera, like this older lady is really like unnerved. And she's worried about like her grandchildren who are like five, seven, something like that, but younger grandchildren, you know, in floats and stuff. And so she's really trying to get her kids out of the pool. And we're also like, you just disturb like our whole piece. And like, there's all these adults with them and nobody's doing anything. And they look kind of, I'm going to use, I'm, I, I try not to use these stereotypical language, but just more so from the picture of trying to paint the picture. They could look kind of like rednecky, I guess, for the lack of better phrase. I'm, I'm trying to think of a shortcut <laughs> phrase. But these adults are just sitting back, not saying anything. This lady's physically perturbed about it. She, with a huff, goes into her room. And so I'm, you know, I just got back from South Africa. So in South Africa, there's a respect for elders. In South Africa, there's also like, I can pull up a kid and just say anything. Like, especially in the village, I can pull you up and like, let you know, you know, community raises a child. Like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Did you not see these kids over here? Did you not see this lady? You're just jumping in, like, calm down. So I'm all in that spirit. And I'm trying to hold back and, and I'm watching. And so the lady starts pulling out her cell phone to record everything that's going on. One of the guys gets all upset, starts banging her in door and like yelling at her. So there's this whole big confrontation now that's kind of gotten out of place. And we're sitting there just like mm, face all scowled up and just, you know, just this and it's always this and privilege this, you know, that kind of thing. And my friend Bray turns to me and says, didn't you make a commitment that every time you feel sort of this pull away from people, I don't know if she knew the whole thing, but I made this commitment of like, every time I felt myself creating a narrative in my head, and this was before even all the Trump stuff, this is probably the year before, it's like 2019. Every time I felt myself creating a narrative for somebody, I was going to just go up and talk to them. And so she turns to me and say, is this what y'all are talking about and trying to overcome? I rolled my eyes so deep and wide at her. I was like, ugh. 
So I'm like, fine, let me throw in some clothes, get dressed, walk all the way over the pool. And so I actually go up to the one guy who actually, it wasn't, I think I was trying to get, and I think I confused who it was, the guy who actually banged on the glass, but it ended up being somebody else. And Brie, it was the most beautiful conversation. Like, so these boys were, um, they were from like some like a, a much more rural area of Virginia. And so it was kind of a big deal to be in the city of Norfolk. But then in addition to that, they were a little league team. So they were there for like the playoffs for like the little league world series. And, you know, they're a team, they're away from home. And like the day before the guy explained to me, the hotel manager said it was fine for them to just kind of be in the pool in that way. So they were doing the same thing they had done the day before. And the other thing that I specifically came to find out was like the guy who I talked to. He was a single father raising his son. He worked in a factory and all he just wanted was for his boy to like have a good life. And he was like, he's a good heart. And he, the boys that were a little bit more rambunctious, he was like, you know, the troublemakers on team, we're trying to do what we can do. And we're hoping that by playing baseball and being in this little league team that helps them to kind of get on the right path. But they're like the ones that are a little bit harder to manage in general on the team. But he was like, he talked to me about his son and his dreams for his son and sort of how hard it is for him as a single father and his dream, Brie. And so you talked a little bit about my travels. And I don't even think like, you know, I, I've traveled, travel, like I've been to 50 countries and here I am, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. in the big city and I'm talking this to this guy and his big dream in life is to travel to Alaska and he feels like it's impossible. And I literally, again, just got off a plane from South Africa, which I go to all the time and kind of, you know, probably take for granted at this point. And it hit me so hard of just like in a humbling way of just like also understanding and recognizing my own blessings. And then also just seeing like his heart and his passion for just like, I work a lot of hours so that my son can have what he needs and so that he can have different opportunities. And this was one that was like a really big deal for them. I talked to him and helped him sort of like, you can go to Alaska if you know if you just put away $5 a month or if you can do this or it's possible and you can like get there. And so we had a whole conversation of how like, and wouldn't it be great to take your son to Alaska even as a high school graduation gift? And if you start now, you could have the money by the time he graduates to take him with you. So the conversation went from there with him flirting with me and I was like, okay, and this is where we draw the line. No, um, <laughs> but we became, which is so weird, but like we became Facebook friends. And it's so funny because he was like a hunter and I am not that person. And like all of a sudden in my Facebook feed, and I don't know if he unfriended me or just because of the algorithms, I don't see him anymore. But like I, for one point afterwards, I'd see all these pictures of like him and his son with some dead deer or something like that in my feed. And it was just this hilarious thing of just looking of like, well, like I get another perspective now. <laughs> so, you know, I think back to that moment because it was one where I resisted and I didn't want it. And because I said these things of who I am, somebody called me out on it and I had to like truly walk in it. And I so appreciate my friend for doing that. But that guy was just like, he had such a good heart. And he actually did for me too. go up and talk to the, the guy who actually banged on the door. And he had a conversation with him and, and the kids ended up moving and just throwing the Frisbee or something somewhere else. And afterwards I went and talked to the older lady and let her know what happened and who they were and tried to bring her back to the pool and calm everything down because she was kind of ruffled. But we're all just people and we all want the same stuff. Like, you know, and we all got hurt and pain and some of that colors us to maybe be like, you know, want to call me an N-word or something like that. But I think now from all my conversations with people and because I'm secure and I know who I am and my identity is not tied up in all of that, 
now at this point, I'm like, oh, you want to call me? Let's talk about it. Let's come on. You can call me that. But can we hug it out afterwards? Let's talk about where that comes from. And really, what do you need? And and what's the pain that's really going on inside? Because if you need me to be that for you, there's something going on in you that's lacking that you need me to be in that place of being submissive and um sorry, not submissive, but inferior. And so let's talk about where that comes from and, and let's let's get to that pain. So I think that's what all of that has taught me is just we're all people with our pain and, and you know, we want to be seen and we want to know we're valued and, you know, we're just kind of all doing our best. I know you know that this show is based on this premise that unknowing is the first step on this path of creative possibility for ourselves, for each other, for our society, for the world. And one of the things I've been exploring are the ways that we have to unknow the limiting stories that we hold about ourselves, but the ones that we hold about each other as well. And you model the gift of what happens when we do that, because what you're saying is that there is a fullness to be received, a wholeness that you're after, outside of our own borders, cultural, political, spiritual borders of what we consider to be people like me, that outside of that is the secret to our wholeness. You said it so beautifully. I'm just sitting in and I was like, yeah, <laughs> I don't I, like, I, you know what, like to your point, because there's a community of merit. I'm like, I don't even know another way to live. Like, and I think I'm so thankful for the experiences that I've had. I counted the other day, I've lived in nine different places as an adult, um, like cities. Three of them were internationally. So I've lived in Paris. I've lived in, been in West Africa. I live in South Africa now. And I've lived as far north as Rhode Island and as far south as Atlanta and as far west as North Dakota. And so I think each of those places that I've lived has allowed me to understand people in a different way. And, and who they are. And so that I think to your point, just the ability to step outside of my own comfort, my own norms, um, allows me to see the world differently and through somebody else's eyes. And I think Peace Corps really opened me up to that because especially like I was there for 9-11 um, and coming back to the U.S. and it was a whole different country and I didn't connect to it because I wasn't here and I didn't understand what people were talking about. And I had a lot of Lebanese friends all of a sudden because I was in Peace Corps and I got to hear from them how they saw 9-11 versus, you know, the narrative that was painted in the U.S. around it. And I saw how people internationally, like my community members came up and like they visited me like I personally knew somebody that died afterwards and just that love and that concern that was there. And just even as I've traveled, I've just seen the best of people. And I know that that's what's at our heart. And it's just like the bruises don't allow us always to bring that forth to everybody. I feel like I've, I've touched humanity's humanity and understood it, even challenging myself to make sure I see that like in the people that I think are sort of like the worst of these in some regards allows me to then be able to see it in, in everybody else. And so we're ultimately just people. Somebody asked me the other day, we were having a conversation around LBGTQ plus and I've, I've now I'm like, I'm becoming like a strong ally in these conversations. I don't even know, like, but anyhow, he was asking, this was somebody who's a, a minister, Christian minister, conservative. And he was asking me, is there like a boundary to love? And I was like, and I sat and I was like, I don't know, I got to think about that. But then I kind of came back and I was like, no. And I think to your point of all this ability to live in different places, the ability to, for myself to like live 
you know, $5 a week or whatever it was, you know, to live at different economic levels. I've seen people who have been in places where people have, have like money, money to places where people have none. I've been, you know, lived in without a flush toilet to whatever um, and travel from one side of the world to the other. I've gotten to understand sort of different cultures, but all of that just says like everybody deserves love. And so I love the murderer as much as I love the anybody else that that's just, pure, you know, whatever at heart, because we all are just people. And then sometimes we fail or when we, you know, and it's all about just getting up and recovering from that. And what did you learn? And so everybody, everybody, the homeless person, the murderer, the drug addict, whoever we think of as sort of the worst of society, they all deserve love. And I think if we all could open up and be a bit more loving to each other, then we'd actually see the world starting to change and people wouldn't go be going to bed hungry and kids wouldn't be getting abused and adults as well. I think it all really comes back to loving ourselves first. And then as you start to love yourself and you give yourself grace, it's so much easier to then give grace and show love to everybody else. Mm. I'm wondering if as the listeners are hearing you talk, if there's a part of them that's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like this all sounds real aspirational. We just need to love each other and it's going to get better. And yet, I know that you actually, you really mean it and you live it, but talk to us about your practice and how you get there because this is one of the things that has so deeply astonished me about you is that you could easily, in the midst of everything that has happened, especially in the last several years, but over the course of your whole life. You could easily be keeping tabs, keeping score. You could be so angry and have every right to be, Misha, for all the things that you have sustained, all the trauma that you have sustained. And yet you choose joy and you choose love. So you just named that part of your steps or part of your practice is that you have to love yourself. You have to get to that place of freedom in yourself so that you can be free to choose love or choose joy. But can you tell us a little bit more about what sustains you having this level of an open heart? Brie, I think you, you kind of just talked to sort of the key there. It's a choice. Like, it's an active choice. Every moment we are making commitments to something. I'm making a commitment to complain. I'm making a commitment to be ungrateful. I'm making a commitment to see and call out your failures. And I think at some point, I got tired of just being sick and tired. But let me also give credit, I think, to the maps. My mother is somebody who is, I'm probably a lot more <laughs> optimistic than her, but I've been getting to know them more as people and I'm starting to understand like how I am, part of who I am is just part of sort of my DNA and um, being born into the families I am. But my mother's pretty optimistic. She's also very super empathetic. Like y'all tell you something, she's like, oh my gosh, and she'll cry. And I'm like, seriously, it's okay. It's okay. Like, <laughs> so, and I, my, my bedrooms were filled with these like motivational quotes and, you know, chicken soup for the teenage soul was something that was a part of my library. And, you know, I grew up on looking at Shirley Temple movies and, you know, we didn't cuss in the house and I didn't listen to secular music. So I think like, I hated all that stuff. Maybe not the Shirley Temple movies and Little House on the Prairie. Like, I, you know, I didn't, I, I actually love that world. And, but I hated some of the other stuff of just like, like the no secular music and stuff, but that 
creates a framework of like a bubble of a world that's different than everybody else's. So when you do go out into the world and you're like, wait, there's a lot of anger here. We like my, we never had yelling growing up. I never experienced that. So some of that is just also part of me from my upbringing. But with that said, as I went through my own experiences and to your point about trauma, et cetera, it's an active choice. I can just, I can sit in this or I can choose something different for myself. And so the Bible teaches forgiveness. And what I've learned is that forgiveness is not for the other person, it's for me. So I think even with the trauma or any of the experiences, it's forgiving. And some of that is forgiving yourself, some of it's forgiving the other person, but that in itself opens your heart to um, other things. I think that's where my journey started of just forgiveness, forgiving people that had done me wrong, forgiving myself allowed me to remove shame that was there, guilt that was there, uh, judgment that was there. I got to the point after that of hearing the voice of criticism, that small voice. And like, oh man, I remember at one point I did Reiki. I've only done like Reiki once. And like in the meditation, I saw this little girl in the straitjacket and she was yelling and full of rage. And I think that connected me with what was going on inside me. And I just made a commitment at that point to like understand what was that I felt, what was that I saw. And I now think of that as sort of like an inner child, but I love on her. And I think all of that, again, was just an active choice of like, I don't want to be this. I don't want to be full of rage and just keep pulling back the onion to understand what is the stuff that keeps me from having peace of mind? What is the stuff that keeps me from having joy? What is the things that keep me from loving myself? In my bedroom, I literally on all my mirrors, it says you are beautiful because I didn't think I was beautiful or know I was beautiful. You know, I I worked on that stuff. Like I said it to myself. I had mantras and it's hard for me to think about all the stuff I've done, but I've actively worked on being the person that I am today and having the perspective that I did because it's what I wanted. And I I knew I can have it for myself, but to your point, the trauma, the pain, et cetera, was blocking me. And just as I've gone through that journey for myself of healing, it allows me to be more empathetic to where other people are on their own journey and being able to see them and appreciate them for where they are in their journey and recognize that we're all on our own journeys and you don't have to be where I am. But my journey says I'm going to show up and meet you with love. Um, And if there's something I can share from my own experiences to help you in healing, I will. But I can also just let you be in your pain and just be able to love on you in your pain. It's wild because I was going to ask you what you think the role of creativity is in personal and social transformation, but I feel like you just answered it because one of the things I'm appreciating in what you're sharing is that partly because of that map that your mom handed you of saying these other worlds can be your world, is that she gave you a real sense of agency and power that you can create the world that is most fulfilling, that you can create a world that is loving, that you can create and be the architect, the um, master artist, the master painter, the master dancer of your own choreography of freedom. And I'm sitting here listening to you describe this and the agency, the power, the participation. It also reminds me of good former, very evangelical Baptist girl over here can quote scripture too, that it reminds me of how Jesus said the kingdom is at hand. You know, so here's Jesus saying like, hey, there's this other reality and it's possible 
it's at hand. It's not like there's this other reality that I have access to that you don't, sorry. (laughs) The message was you can bring this reality here. And so would you say that that is the nexus of where you experience creativity and personal and social change? Is that that choice, the power of saying, I'm going to participate, I'm going to make it different, I'm going to create that better, bigger, more loving world here. Okay, can I, before I answer that question, can I ask you a question? I know it's your podcast, but can I ask you a question real quick? (laughs) I noticed in you, before you started talking just now, like I, I saw the emotion well up and I saw you push it back down. And I'm just wondering what was there. I know you shared part of it in your question, but there was something else more there. Oh, mm, so observant. Um, I think it's because there is something unfolding in my own life, this sort of like discovery that has taken nearly 40 years to get to. Girl, it's okay. It's okay. We're here now. We're here now. (laughs) The 40 years of the desert of my own life to get to this place of, of really believing, really actually believing that it's possible to rewire and recreate these narratives, to redirect the pain into a place of healing, to rediscover the power of presence and of love. And I think you saw emotion because you have embodied it so fully for me in so many different moments over the last couple of years. But I feel that sense of like baptism of belief in the possible. And it's so much of what I'm doing here with this podcast is that I really do believe it's possible for us to create new possibilities and that unknowing is part of that. Yeah. So I think that's what you saw. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll go back to your nexus of creativity now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to make sure I, because I saw it, it was, and it was big and I'm trying to remember the question fully, but this is what comes up for me. One, freedom, liberation. They're two sides of of a coin for me, but they're different. I've marked from all of this work that I've done and all this conversation <laughs> in my journey, like a lot of healing, a lot of healing is in my journey. That's what I, I call. I, I've heard said before, your testimony is in the test, right? Your purpose is in the pain, right? So all of that stuff has brought me to to your point of how I see the world now, how I live, how I show up in the world now. And so liberation through light and love is my purpose, And so I think that means that I will, by being light, that that thing you called out that you see in me, by being that and bringing that forth in the world and by embodying love and being love and showing love and embracing, because I had to work on embracing love and embracing love and receiving it, there is liberation for me. And through my own liberation, I can help other people be liberated, right? So with that said, in going back to my kind of free-spirited like world, my friend gave me a snow globe that has like a unicorn and some glitter <laughs> and a rainbow in it. And she's like, that's your world. And I was like, yes, it is. And I love Sounds it. Right. Like, I don't want to be in y'all's <laughs> world. Like, I like my rainbows and glitters and fairies and whatever else, right? Like, I like the fact that I skip down the street and I'm dancing to myself and I have whimsical moments with homeless people. I feel like I'm in my own little movie and I have fun moments with strangers. I have a ball just in 
in my everyday mundaneness of my life. And I love that. And that was even like a commitment to myself after traveling the world so much was then how do I make the world, my everyday world also be an adventurer, be an explorer in my everyday life, right? So that way I didn't have to look forward to the next trip in order to have an adventure. But with that said, um, the other thing that I've gotten to, and, and you actually opened this up in me, through some of our meditations that we would have on Mondays that you led for Unite, um, I remember in some of those images, like there's that girl, that same girl that was in a straight jacket. At one point, she's waiting at the door for her father. And that's also through some of my therapy. I saw her she's waiting at the door for her father to come. And I think at some point, like in our Monday meditations, I saw her go outside. <laughs> and like she wasn't just sitting there waiting for her dad anymore. She realized she had, using your language, agency to get up the ability to get up and just go and live, right? And so she moved from just waiting for her father and being sad to going outside. And I saw her one time, arms wide open, dancing underneath of a tree. And then I I love the swings. I love that feeling of freedom of the window in your back, like as much as I love like motorcycles or convertibles kind of thing. And so I saw that little girl like get in the swing and I actually have a picture that I painted in my house in South Africa of a little girl in the swing. And I saw that image sort of come to life of this little girl with her little afro, little afro puffs on the swing. And one day, like in one of our last meditations before we went on pause, I saw her jump off the swing and just stay suspended in air. And in the meditation when we did it, I saw like an urban scene, like skyline on one side and like a village scene on the other. And as we were going through the meditation, it was almost this pull to like, you should go down and like explore these areas. And again, with that agency, I was like, no, I like it up here and just feeling that suspension. And so that to me, that place is my creative nexus. And I call it, and what I look at it as freedom to me, pulling from you know my Christian background is to be in the world but not of the world. And so now I can be in this point where I can be like, I, I'm very like, my world is quiet. Like I don't watch the news. I barely look even at the, I need to close the subscriptions that I have to newspapers. I, I glance through those. I'm even starting to recultivate my social media feed or just not get in it. Cause I just want to look at the stuff that inspires me. And not, I know people are getting killed. I just don't need to see it all the time in my feed. I don't have chit chat conversations with people. Cause I recognize a lot of chit chat is really just complaining about the weather or what's going on in the news. So I'm choiceful about what I allow into my world. And I'm even choiceful now because I recognize that like based on my spiritual gifts, I feel people's stuff and it pulls on me. And and I and I'm growing from this place where I felt like the need to help everybody and talk to them about their stuff and be this place for you to dump on in some regards. Where now, like if I'm in that conversation with you, like I'm choiceful, like I'm in a moment where I have the energy to expend and give it to somebody else. But then in addition to that, if I'm here and I'm I'm listening to your stuff. And if you invite me in to give you advice, I will. But other than that, I just listen. And that also helps me to like maintain my energy. So my creative nexus is one, a place of sort of being in the world, but not of it, managing my energy. And I think the third thing that I've learned as well as a practice is and again, it's coming from meditation. And it's like, meditation was such a bad word to me in my life of like, what at one point, you know, like, am I going to meditate? But like somebody gifted me a meditation where I connect 
with God. And for me, I see it as this light coming down into my head and I feel that through. And in the original meditation she did with me, one of my coaches, you know, she then asked me to like connect that nut light and then send it out throughout the room I was in and throughout my house and then throughout my community and then throughout like my city and the world, et cetera, right? And when I did that, that felt so true to me. And I felt like, a like I call it my Care Bear stare now. Um, but I tap <laughs> into that meditation where I'm like, can I connect to this God? I call it connecting my horizontal and my vertical, but connecting yeah. to God and then taking that light and that energy and pushing it out. And what I now recognize, and this is just a recent like, aha, because I'm um, getting trained in ontological coaching. And so part of what they're teaching us is to make sure you have done your own practices sort of before you start your session so you can be fully present with people. And so one of the things I'm doing, whether it's from going into a session or even some of my meetings for my organization, is I'm doing that. And I'm kind of tapping into maybe not as literal as I just said to you, but sort of how can I be present and really feel God within me and then tapping into my ability for God to come through me. And, and part of the reason why I know why it works for me, but also I need to do that is because being in the world and out of the world also connects me to my divinity. In doing that, what I'm recognizing and what I also am knowing now, knowing, not unknowing, but knowing is that I am merely a vessel. And if I can get out of my own way so that God can come forth and use me as I'm doing stuff, then that's where the work happens. And so that ability to like truly tap in and then allow flow and God to come through me allows all of Misha's stuff to no longer be a deterrent to work being done through me. And I can truly tap into whatever you, whether you want to call it flow, whether you want to call it Holy Spirit, light, whatever that looks like. I actively now work on as a practice, bringing that forth through me. Mm, mm. You know, as I'm listening to you, it sounds like, to me, one of the common threads through those different categories that you mentioned of, of what your personal practice is, how you keep that open heart is through clarity of not borders, but boundaries, healthy boundaries. Like you're, you're paying attention to what you're bringing in to your body, to your energy field. You're making choices about that. You're aware of your own needs and, and you know, how to take care of yourself physically, emotionally, how you feed that kind of creative spirit, how you keep that clear. So that, as you said, when you're in these moments, these opportunities of connection, you know how to be really present and be really clear and be in flow. And you know, Misha, you, you remind me of what Howard Thurman said when he said, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Have you heard this quote? Mm -hmm. And then he says, you know, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. <laughs> and, um, you know, you've always asked me questions like, Brie, what are your values? You got to get really clear on your values. Like, Brie, what's your mission statement? You got to Is that how I sound to you? <laughs> no, no, but it's good because what you're saying is, and this is part of why I'm saying this, is because that having that clarity is part of that creative agency in creating the world that we long for, the possibility that we we are we deeply hope could be real. Um so, but can I pause you, you know, there, Brie? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I don't think I have a hope for the world. I, I, I think I've, I've stepped away from that. I, I'm not trying to save anything. <laughs> Even though I may live in my own bubbly world, <laughs> I'm not necessarily trying to transform the world into that. 
Um, Because I think, honestly, to your point, even as people are listening, maybe cynical about what I'm saying here, I think I'm cynical about what I'm saying. So a part of me is like, I hold that contradiction and being like as much because I I have, I really do feel and talk to humanity. I also know the bads and ills of it. I just choose not to focus on it. So a part of me is like, "Mm, but I know how people and I know how really evil they are. So uh, can we really change? So I guess a part of me is just, can I create ripples? And like, to me, it's less about making the world into a certain place. and, And I have some ideal of what that looks like. But I think it's more so my sphere is really around youth and it's the healing journey. It's the the taking, getting rid of the mud. You know, in Toni Morrison's um, Their Eyes Are Watching God, she gives this beautiful metaphor of how like we were originally light. And then that light, the angels got jealous and so they shattered us into a bunch of pieces of glass so our light wouldn't shine, but it still shone really bright. So then what they did was they poured mud over top of it because they were ultimately jealous. My sort of purpose, going back to that liberation, light, and love, is I want to help people get rid of their mud. And so whatever their truth looks like when they're at their truth. So I think if you're living in your truth and you really are tapped into your own spirit, anger, greed, some of those things that we do look at as sort of the ills of society, that's part of the mud. That's part of the like mass, et cetera. I think our truth and our light is different. And so what my sort of focus is on is helping people tap into, understand their truth, their light, their purpose, and then they can go forth and do whatever it is they're meant to do and create whatever it is they, they want to create. But I don't know if I have an ideal vision of what the world is. Well, you know what that makes me think of and why that's so awesome is that Many of the artists that have been on the show and in the conversations I've had, it's sort of like the worst thing you can do is have a perfectly outlined outcome that you're trying to get. Like, say you're working on an album and you're like, I want it to be exactly this. Well, that's like the worst thing you can do when you're starting a process of recording an album because you're limiting than the creative possibility that can unfold. So what you're saying is, okay, I don't have this grandiose vision for the world, but what I know is that if I show up in the right way, in the way that's true to my truth, then I can have an impact on tuning this other person to their truth. And it can go out in unexpected possibilities. And you trust that whatever is going to come out of that is going to be good in some shape, way, or form. You don't need to know what the outcome is, but... The process is the product. Exactly, which goes back to why the talking is stranger. So that five-minute conversation, I showed up in my truth like the other night. I was at a restaurant. I yelled across the restaurant to the guy because we had this whole moment. It's like a carryout spot. But I'm like, I don't know. Like, he'll remember me. And we had a moment, and it was fun. And it was like nothing else. And it was like courageously of just this this joyful, a courageously joyful moment. Um, it wasn't ill, you know, intended that then set something else off that then allows, you know, shows that there are people out here that are living their truth. There are people here that are a little wacky and crazy. There are people here that just have joy and love and don't want anything from it. You know, there are people who can just joke. So that five minute interaction matters as much as the kids that I may spend like a lifetime with or four years with, because it all does create the ripples to help us tap into our truth. Misha, for all the ways that you embody this profound courage beyond borders, (laughs) this love that is unboundaried, this Um, capacity to see the divine in strangers and the ways that you're inviting us to talk to strangers, to see that as a practice. 
I'm so thankful for the wisdom that you just shared with us. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, my sister. Okay, so we're learning how to connect with each other beyond the borders of our own maps, whether those maps are inherited or created. We are learning how to move into the terrain of unknowing in our relationships with people we know and with strangers. So here are a few pieces of true North wisdom that I'm taking with me from this conversation. Number one, it's a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice. I loved how Misha said that every choice we make is declaring a commitment that we're upholding. I mean, that is so profound. And I think what it invites us to do is to create a sort of inventory about the choices and commitments we're making every day and consider perhaps the ways in which we can shift those choices, those commitments, those stories, those narratives into a space of flexibility and fluidity and openness and imagination and potential. For all of you fellow Enneagram 4s out there, uh, this is a heavy one. Realizing that how we feel about things is a choice is kind of kind of rocks our, our melancholy boat a bit. But I think it's an invitation for anyone, regardless of Enneagram identification, for all of us to think about the ways in which we can shift our choices into a place of love, a place that can forgive, forgive ourselves and forgive others for the complexity of being human of not getting it right the first time or every time um, and being willing to be in process together. Second piece of true North wisdom, you've got to ground yourself and be very clear about your own energy, your capacity, your space, your grounding so that you can then be that kind of curious, courageous, loving person that can cross borders, whether they be spiritual, political, or otherwise, and seek connection with people who are different than you. I mean, in some ways, it feels trite to say it, you know, you got to love yourself first before you can love others. But I think that's part of what Misha was inviting us into, is recognizing that that space of doing our practice, our inner work, of taking care of ourselves, of our energy, our bodies, our spirit, is the work of loving others. Because if we don't do that, we cannot show up for each other. That's it for today's episode. If these conversations are resonating with you, if this conversation in particular struck a chord, I want to invite you to do a couple of things to join me in co-creating unknowing. The first thing is you can rate this podcast or share it with a friend. Ratings are one way to help make this podcast more visible. The other thing that you can do is consider becoming a patron. Trust me, I don't like pitching and asking for help. It is a difficult thing. And I know most of us are really tired of hearing slick pitches about support. But here's the deal. I am doing this entirely with the support of patrons. So if you want to keep the lights on in unknowing, I guess I should say if you want to keep the lights off in unknowing, if you want to just keep unknowing going, <laughs> please consider becoming a patron. And I've cooked up some cool things for patrons. There's a companion masterclass that patrons have access to where every week you get a corresponding reflection and suggested practice that goes with each episode. 
You can visit unknowing.org to learn more, or you can visit the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Stoner. And remember, as Rilke says, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. I'm trying right along with you.